Well, I like to see myself as a writer and not a rapper. Like, even though obviously my genre is rap, like, I don't necessarily like to view myself as a, a rapper per se. Like, I'm just, I'm a storyteller and I get to tell my story as well as my, my ancestors and my family's story. Welcome back to another episode of Everyday Endorphins. If you know me, you know that I love rap music, which a lot of people are like confused by. If they meet me for the first time, they wouldn't necessarily think that's the genre that I gravitate towards. But if you know me well, and if you knew me in high school, Migos and Travis Scott, like that was the dream team for me. But we are not here to talk about Migos and Travis Scott, maybe a little bit about Kid Cudi, if you make it that far into the episode. What we are here to talk about, though, is Hugh Lee and how he got interested in rap music, the creative process behind producing, writing, and performing rap, and the relationship between mental health and music and dealing with adversity growing up in a pretty impoverished and dangerous neighborhood in the west side of Chicago. It was such a pleasure to get to sit down with Hugh and to hear about what's inspired him, how he's pushed through adversity, and what his plans are moving into now 2022. So I hope you guys like the episode. And before we get into it, I have a brief message from my sponsor, Anchor. Hi, Hugh. Thank you so much for coming on to the podcast. Thank you for having me. It's wonderful to get to sit down virtually with you in another, you know, non-COVID world. Hopefully we'd be both in New York recording together, but super thrilled that you're on the podcast today. I listened to some of your music recently and really just it's it's super awesome. And, you know, I'm a huge rap fan. So to get to sit down with someone who's creative like yourself, produces and raps, I just think, you know, it's, it's such an honor to get to chat today. And I'm super excited to have my listeners learn a little bit more about you and the power of music and mental health. Thank you for saying that. <laughs> I'm, I'm glad you like it. Uh, and I'm glad to be here. I'm glad to be able to talk a little bit about um, the correlation between music and mental health. It's a big thing for me. Well, you know, let's start right there. So can you share a little bit about how you got into music, how you got into rapping and like the trajectory of your music career? Uh, well, I think I was always into music, um, just based on my dad always being into music, but I never did it because I was always nervous that I would suck. Uh, <laughs> and like my brother and my cousins, they would all rap all the time. And I would never rap. They were like, yeah, rap with us. And I'm like, no, no, no. Like, I'm awful. I know it. But uh, as I, like, got older, like, into college, which is when I really started rapping, it became, like, therapy for me. Like, And so now it's just something I do as a therapeutic thing or rather started doing as a therapeutic thing. But other people identify with it. And they're like, I feel the same way. So then it became, like, a, a thing that we kind of connected with, which is even better. Yeah, I mean, for me, like writing is kind of, you know, this therapeutic outlet that I have. I was a creative writing minor in college, and I don't know if this was a good thing or a bad thing, but I used my classes as like self-induced therapy where I would just write about things that like were stressing me out or people that were stressing me out. And I had like use encrypted language to like try to talk about something that was, you know, top of mind. And we would like share our pieces in class. So I couldn't like disclose any names or like specific details. But there's really something to be said about like the process of just getting your thoughts down on paper. I don't know if you feel that way, like when you're actually composing the music, like when you're like sitting down to write the lyrics, or if it's like, the flow that you feel when you're actually like rapping or singing, like that process of like, you know, translating your story into words and sharing that in music. It used to be when I was writing it. But the problem with that for me anyway, was that it was very hard to uh, re recapture that feeling that I had while I was writing it and then put it on a song. Cause then it just sounded like, like when you're giving a speech in class and it's like, ah, oh, like that's what it sounded like. So I just stopped writing altogether and I just let whatever come out, kind of come out and just punch, punch in, punch in. Cause it sounds more organic that way. And it's, it's more honest because it's, it's literally coming out kind of like free writing, if you will. And I, so, yeah. It's so like freestyling kind yeah. of. But like with a lot of punches. So I have time to think about what I'm going to say, but it's just not written down. It's like immediately think about it and say it as you think it that way. It's like that raw emotion that you had in your thoughts as opposed to waiting three weeks or two weeks to go record it. <laughs> wow. So do you just kind of like 
sit down to like, I guess, record. And as you're freestyling, like you're thinking and it's just, is it this like long process where you're kind of slowly developing the song? Well, um, I kind of take the notes from like the greats, like Kanye and specifically him, because he's the one who I saw do it the most, where it's like, I'll have a beat and I'll just do like top lines and melodies. So like, I'll know that I want it to be like, but I won't, I'll record it in my voice memo. So I know exactly the cadence of it, but I won't have any words that way. When I go in there, all I need to memorize is how I'm going to say it. And whatever words come out, they just come out. I find the creative process so fascinating because like I cannot freestyle. It's like, I just cannot. (laughs) It's hard for me to like think on my feet like that. And I do not have that sort of like creative talent, but um, you know, rap in particular is so interesting because there's a lot of rappers out there that I think produce really quality music, like really quality content. And if you listen closely, there's such a beautiful meaning behind what they're writing about, like Kid Cudi, for example. Like if you really listen to his lyrics, it's like insane. But then there's other rappers out there like 6 9 or whatever, you know, however you pronounce. Like I actually wrote a paper about him in college and it's a little – it's interesting. But like, you know, he – has very vulgar lyrics and it's it's there's a lot going on there that you know if you just kind of take away the the lyrics and you listen to the melody it's kind of like shouting and you know I can understand why some people do like his music like I can I can understand that um but if you compare like Kanye and Kid Cudi toward to him or like maybe another like I don't know what they call those rappers not SoundCloud rappers but like um I guess he is kind of one yeah, there's you can tell that yeah, some, like you know some song, songs right. are really backed by like emotion and um you know really mm-hmm. like poetry in a way. I would not say that Six Nine has very poetic lyrics, but um in your case, I would love to like talk a little bit more about the inspiration behind your music and what experience you you draw from to write your music about and kind of how you got into songwriting and and performing and everything. First, it's funny that you mentioned Kid Cudi because uh, like my mixtape cover, even though everyone calls it an album, but my mixtape cover for The Younger I Get, um, it was actually inspired by Kid Cudi. It's like the first project where I thought that like you could be emotional and like uh, uh, like sensitive and really expressive in music because like when I was in middle school, all you heard was like gangster rap. You didn't hear like people being sensitive. Drake was kind of just coming out. Even then he was just singing for women. He wasn't necessarily talking about his own things. Uh, whereas the first project I heard like that was Man on the Moon 2. So if you kind of put the younger I get right next to Man on the Moon 2 uh, album cover, they're like the exact same. It's the same pose. It's the same kind of backdrop. Uh, it's the same clothes and everything, except he has like the jacket on. And I just have the uh, vest and the tie with the shirt on, but I don't have the jacket on. But it's the exact same kind of thing. So I did that intentionally just for Kid Cudi. <laughs> oh, I love that. I def- I need to like look at that again because that totally like <laughs> slipped my mind. But he is really like – he's very open about his mental health struggles. And you can clearly hear it in, in the music, especially in Pursuit of Happiness. I think that's a very powerful song. It's fascinating because a lot of rappers like – Uh, have suffered a lot of mental health issues and are very open about it in their music. And I feel like often the music kind of masks the meaning behind the song because, you know, everyday people just listen and it's a catchy tune or it's something they can hum along to. But we're not super intentional about like what the lyrics actually mean. Like we're just kind of mindlessly listening. But if you take a minute to like step back and think, there's some pretty dark stuff in there. Yeah. Uh, and it's funny because like when I first started rapping, I was just rapping, rapping. And it was just like, you know, making songs that I thought would be good or whatever, whatever. And after I started taking it seriously and I started learning more about branding, it's like, how did I want to brand myself? And I had to think about the fact that, hey, I'm going to have to perform these songs multiple times, maybe six, seven times a week. So I have to perform things that I like and I want it to be something that's uh, therapeutic for me, especially me understanding how energy works and how when you put things into the universe, how it comes out. So I studied for like a year and a half and I studied all these big songs that kind of blew. I'm trying to think of the exact one. Don't Kill My Bob, 3005 by Gambino. And there were a few others, of course, a bunch of Cuddy songs where it was like these very positive sounding songs in sound but then the lyrics were very dark and that was kind of what I wanted to do myself because like 
you know, we all go through a lot, especially me being from Chicago. And I think anywhere in the Midwest, Northeast, that kind of like late August through like February, when seasonal depression starts to hit, it can be really big. And I want it, but I didn't want to like lull everybody with like depression 24 seven. So I was like, I'll, I'll put these depressing kind of sounds or this therapy for myself on these really like positive sounding beats. So like with the exception of Dead Poet Society, um, like all of my songs, I usually have one that's just like overtly dark, but for the most part, all of my songs have like a, a positive sound to it, but it has like a, a, a darker in the lyrics kind of thing to it. And uh, I try to keep that that kind of going so that I can have my therapy. It's why I don't really, I don't really listen to my own music because it's like, or when people try to play my music around me, it's like, if you're reading my diary in front of me, because it's like, I'm so honest, I'm so brutally honest in the music. It's like, I don't want to hear it that much, like outside of when I'm recording or outside when I have to perform it, because that's the therapy. But I don't want to be sitting in a living room like, oh, you have music, let me play something. And it's like, you play my diary. And I'm just like, this is awesome. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, I can semi-relate. Like, I don't really listen to my own podcast episodes because I don't want to have to hear myself speak again. <laughs> like, it's it's a little too close for comfort. But there is something to be said about the irony behind like listening to quote unquote depressing music or like music with lyrics that are a bit more melancholy to like get yourself out of a, a sadness or a funk. And especially with this whole seasonal depression thing, obviously, you know, it's a real thing. And in the Northeast and in the Midwest, like when it gets dark at literally four o'clock and your day feels like it's finished with by, you know, all of a sudden you blink your eyes and the day's gone. And, you know, sometimes it just feels really good in a weird way to like put in headphones, maybe go on like a night walk. And by night, I mean like a 5 p.m. walk when it's pitch black and like <laughs> listen to sad music. If you're feeling kind of like in a weird, you know, mental state or if you're just feeling really sad for whatever reason, I find sometimes that like I actually crave listening to sadder music and there definitely is some sort of like neurological, like science-backed explanation as to how that can make us feel better. Like maybe we get an endorphin kick from that or maybe it's serotonin. I could not tell you. But um, there's something, you know, to be said about that. And even if like you, for example, your lyrics may be a bit more depressing or sad, masked by like a a joyous melodic tune, I think that's a really beautiful like juxtaposition because – um, that can really create like such dynamic music. Yeah, I absolutely agree. And it was like by studying the people who did it before me, I knew that it was what I wanted to do. I didn't want to make I didn't want to make drill music like everyone else in Chicago. Um, I didn't want to do the overly positive music like uh, because when I was first starting in the industry, there was you had Chief Keith and you had Chance the Rapper, and there was really no in between. You had super happy, positive, or dark grit. And I didn't really want either of those things. Uh, I didn't want to be super positive because I felt like it was easy to lose your brand. Uh, if anything goes negative, if anything goes wrong, any kind of scandal, anything, you can lose everything when you're so high on this pedestal. And then the, on the inverse with Chief Keith, it's like you can't do shows anywhere. Everybody's afraid there's going to be uh, gang violence or retaliation of some sort and yada, yada. So I was like, OK, how can I stay in the middle, still be myself? and brand myself in a way that I, I can. And that was like what I tried to do. And it took, took a lot of time and a lot of, uh, a lot of failure. But once I got the hang of it, then it, it started rolling. But there was a lot of failure there. <laughs> I'd love for you to elaborate a bit more on that failure piece. Very important, I think, to talk about because we're often so, you know, when we have, when we experience setbacks, it's very discouraging. And I think that is like, one of the biggest barriers to our success because we let those failures like define the future. And it's very hard to just tell yourself, okay, this was, you know, a detour or this was like a little bump in the road. And like, if I keep, you know, going and if I keep being intentional about my choices and, you know, keeping my eye on the prize or whatever you want to tell yourself, uh, you know, you can overcome those obstacles. So how did you deal with those failures and how did that impact like the rest of, you know, the way in which you kept, you know, moving along with your music? The failures hit me very hard. I'm a pretty sensitive person. Like anybody who knows me would say I'm pretty sensitive. 
uh, I hide it well, so you'll never really know. Like, if you ever said anything to me that offended me, you'll never know that you offended me, but I'll know that you offended me and I'll just like internalize it. But if you know me well enough, you'll be able to see my facial cues because I'll never like make a big deal out of it. I'll never like call you out like, oh, you did this, but you'll know based on just knowing me. And I was like, okay. But I, I, the failures hit me a little bit harder because I'm so sensitive. So it made better music for me, um, but I felt like it made me angrier. Like I became more like I had a chip on my shoulder and I had something to prove. And whereas that drove me, um, it didn't make for the best music therapeutically. Like everything was so like, even me listening to like work that I have now versus work that I had two, three years ago, even the way that I deliver the lyrics are different because it's like, I can hear the, the just uh, obnoxious aggression in the delivery of the lyrics. And it's just like, huh, like, and I used to mistake it for energy. Um, like, oh, that's just high energy. But then I have high energy songs now and it doesn't come off aggressive. It comes off more, I don't want to say stoic, but at least uh, less like angry. And so I think that kind of rage fueled me to keep going because I wanted to prove people wrong, especially being that none of my friends like my music. So that was a big thing. Like none of my friends like my music at all. Uh, not a single one. Uh, they would all say, mm, I don't like it. I don't like it. I don't like it. Uh, <laughs> like, and that was a big thing for me too. So I just had to keep going and try to make music that didn't compromise what I personally liked to gain the approval of my friends, but still do something to improve. So there was that where I don't have a pure support system, which I kind of counted as a failure. And then every time I was trying to like plant a seed here, plant a seed there, it wouldn't really pan out because there's not really any opportunities in Chicago like that. Um, there's no major labels in Chicago. There's no recording studios or not. Uh, there's no recording studios in terms of movies in Chicago. There's maybe five or six of them, uh, or at least when I was coming up, there were in terms of music recording studios, but they were so expensive, especially for me. Like I'm fresh out of college paying $50 an hour and I need to do a whole album. is just insane. Like I can't throw $2,000, $3,000 down the, down to record. And so it was such a, uh, a difficult task for me and more important than all of that because rap has such a bad connotation in Chicago I couldn't perform anywhere like I couldn't do any shows like oh sell some tickets couldn't do any of that so it was like literally what do I do and I just found little ways to sneak and make ways like okay I'll do this open mic at this university I can't do anything at the venues but I can do it at the college so I'll do DePaul I'll do Columbia I'll do Northwestern. I'll go down to Indiana State and do these open mics and try to build a buzz as much as I can. Blogs are a little bit bigger there too. So I was able to, to do that, um, like push to the blogs, make sure the blogs are picking me up. Uh, and through all of that, my people still didn't like my music, but there were random people in the world that were liking it. Um, and I think the biggest failure that I had was my first tour. My first tour, I paid to be on Big Sean's Hall of Fame tour. Uh, he, or the promoters, I'll say, had like, you can open for Big Sean, $300 a night. And so me and my buddy went half and half on it. Uh, me and him used to make music together. So we had like all of our music together. So we performed together. So it's like, we did 10 days, $300 a piece. Uh, so it came out to like 1500 each. And we were so new that we didn't even know about merch. So it's like, we weren't making any money back. We're spending money on gas to get to each show or Megabus because we're taking the Megabus or hotels. And then we, are, we pay obviously to perform and we're not making anything back and we're wasting like months of our time. And we are just like, okay, now the tour is over. What now? And on top of all of that, it'd be like Big Sean would perform at like 10 p.m. And we're performing at like 6.45 so there's no one there when we're performing anyway. So it's literally just like a waste of money. And I kind of count that as a fail, but I'm glad that I got that lesson because it taught me a lot. One, about being on the road. Uh, and two, just about how the industry works. And it's all, you have to treat it like a business before anything else, as opposed to just, oh, this is my passion and this is my craft. It's like, no, this is a business. If you want to do the the music, let's just have fun, then you can work a fast food job and do music on the side. But if you want to be in this industry, you have to treat it like a business. And so I, I definitely said that was the biggest failure, just being so overzealous and so ambitious that we didn't do our homework for that. 
Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, to your point, though, those were probably really good learning opportunities. And it's like, how else would you have known that maybe that wasn't the best strategic move unless you tried it? You know, I would have thought that, oh, like opening for Big Sean, that's huge. Like, that's so cool. But if, like you mentioned, like if he's performing at 10 and you're on like three to four hours earlier and there's not really a crowd, then how many people are you actually reaching? Were you actually able to meet Big Sean? I think I met him twice, but it was like a quick hello, goodbye thing. Because another thing is, this is my first introduction to the industry. Like I had just released my first song maybe three months before that. I didn't know there are a ton of other openers. Like I'm thinking like, oh, we're going to open. He's right after us. It's like, no, you're going to open. There's like eight other openers and then he's going. It's like, oh, this is different. And then I didn't know about bands. It's just us in a, uh, hey, DJ, play our songs. Like then Big Sean comes out and he's got a band and he's got smoke and he's got like pyrotechnics. And I'm just like, oh, there's there's another level to this, huh? Like, this is awkward. (laughs) I know also earlier you mentioned that, you know, your friends didn't really love your music and it's taken a a while to really like grow into your craft. But you were also Emmy nominated. I know it was not technically for your music, but I would love, you know, for you to talk a little bit more about that nomination. And, um, you know, I've there's so many articles like I've you know Googled your name, obviously. And like there's so many articles that come up around like, you know, Hugh Lee is like the next up and coming rapper like based out like from Chicago. And um, obviously these things take time. So yes, maybe your friends didn't love your music at the beginning, but nothing, you know, that's successful, like nothing happens in an overnight success. Um, and clearly you've really accomplished so much in these past few years, which is incredible. So I'd love for you to share with my listeners a little bit more about, you know, what has been going on. So, well, I'll start with the Emmy nomination because I still find that uh, my PR teams always put that in, but I just, I'd laugh at it because it was like, if I was like number 11 man on the team the year that the Golden State Warriors won the championship and I never played any minutes, but I got the, you know, the ring as well with them. I think it was 2017 and 2018, if I'm not mistaken, it could be the two years before that. But um, I was doing a lot of PA work because um, after I had lost a ton of money on the Big Sean thing, the way that I was doing a lot of my um, rounds in terms of touring was I would go with other local artists and say, hey, I want to go on tour with you. I don't really have draw or fan base or anything like that. But if you let me open for you, then I'll give you like this is back when Instagram only had the one minute video. So I would give you like a recap of your whole performance for tonight. And so you don't have to pay me. Just just let me open for you. So I was uh, doing a lot of PA work on TV shows and things like that, like The Shy and uh, Shameless, et cetera, et cetera. And I got a gig doing PA work on American Ninja Warrior in Minneapolis. So I drive up to Minneapolis, uh, 6 p.m. Well, the show, the shooting starts at 6 p.m. because it's a 6 p.m. to 6 a.m. shoot. And I think the first day it was, I was in the bathroom at like 3 a.m. because I'm not a night person at all. I, I'm a morning person through and through, but I'm in the bathroom trying to splash water on my face because the Red Bull that I had and the three coffees is just not doing the trick. And I'm talking to this guy in there because he's like, he's just in there washing his hands or whatever. And he's like, it's a great, great night, huh? And I'm like, yeah, like the way I never knew like how big setup like this was. And it was, it really was an amazing set. And he's like, uh, you know anything about shooting or anything like that? I'm like, yeah, I shoot a little bit. Not to this extent. Like, there's all types of high-level production here. But I'd love to learn one day, like, whatever. Like, once again, I don't know who this guy is. He's like, well, why don't you come to me to, come with me to this tent? And I'm like, okay. I, I'm thinking he's taking me to the uh, – I'm sorry, I don't remember the name of it. But there's, like, a special name for the food tent, like, the catering area. That's where I'm thinking he's taking me. Um, but he takes me to the director's tent. And on this one screen, there's, like – 16, 17 different screens uh, of all the different shots throughout the entire arena. And then on the other screen is the um, the Warriors and the Rockets playing in the playoffs. <laughs> so whatever year James Harden was on the Rockets and they were playing the Warriors, that, that was the first year. But there's that screen and then there's this one. And he's like, oh, what would you do here? What would you do there? Yada, yada. I was like, well, I would do this. I would do that. And he's like teaching me. Uh, like, well, this is why you don't do that. This is why you should do this. Yada, yada, yada. And I ended up just literally from him just telling me things. And the next day as well, uh, he gave me DP credit. And even though I didn't technically do DP work, he gave me DP credit. And that episode got nominated for Best Directing. 
And then the whole show got nominated that year for a uh, best reality competition, I believe. Uh, and I think both lost to like RuPaul's Drag Race. But yeah, so because I got DP uh, for the directing and because I was working on the episode and I got that credit, that's how I got the two Emmy nominations. It's kind of just lucky. <laughs> well, that's awesome. I mean, you know, I would I would take it. <laughs> yeah, yeah I take it. That's very, very cool. And you bring so much more to the table also, like beyond just being a rapper, but you also have like experience in video production and um, like like video editing. I think that's really kind of like the whole package as being like an artist because now we're also seeing so much video content uh, and especially with the rise of like virtual concerts in the metaverse. Like there's just so much going on within that space um, and especially in music and rap. So, you know, and I know you're going on tour, I think in February, right? Is when you said you're starting. Hopefully. I mean, I just saw a lot of stuff today that they may shut everything back down. So if everything is where it is is now, then I know like the first date is in Seattle, the second date is in LA, or those could be flipped. And then the third one's in Chicago, of course, but those are all February, uh, mid-February. So that if everything stands, then yeah. (laughs) Fingers crossed. I hope I hope things, you know, are are able to go as planned. And if not, then we pivot, you know, like things always do work out as they should. I want to backtrack just a little bit and talk a bit more about your background and like growing up in Chicago, like your experiences in your childhood, how that kind of like inspired your craft and what you ended up writing about in your music and what you continue to write about in your music as well. I'm obviously I'm from the west side of Chicago. Um, Austin neighborhood, spent more than a little bit of time in the Cabrini Green projects. And we moved around a lot because uh, we weren't we weren't really well off financially. So we moved around quite a bit. Like I went to 16 or 17 different schools in between kindergarten and 12th grade. Uh, and so like that was one thing that I did dislike as a kid was I never had that. Oh, I've been friends with this person for eight, nine, 10 years because we moved around so much. But uh, it actually helped me later on because now people are like, oh, yeah, I went to first grade with you and this person like second grade. And it's like so many different people are like, I went to school with you. It kind of helps me. Uh, but that mixed with just being poor, very poor. And then the violence that in, that was throughout the city um, and trying to. I don't want to say trying to stay away from it, because when we're young, we don't understand the gravity of just how dangerous it is. So for us, it was like fun. It was like an adrenaline rush. And so we wanted to be a part of everything. We wanted to, you know, it was like a sport. And it sounds so bad, like saying it now, but we didn't know any better. It's all we knew. So it was like a sport for us to just be in the streets, to be violent, to be doing whatever we needed to do. And then um, as we got older and you see like, oh, I'm 13 years old and I'm trying to get a job, but I can't. Um, so then you start diving into other things so where you can actually make money any way that you can, whether it be legal or illegal. And so those kind of played a, a huge uh, role in the music that I make just based on me telling my story growing up. Yeah. I mean, I actually just watched a documentary called A Most Beautiful Thing, and it's about the first all-Black rowing team um, based out of I, Marley High School. I can't remember the name. It's a, it's a high school in the west side of Chicago. In that documentary, I learned a lot about they, – like they talked a lot about the statistics around violence and how like it was more likely that you would be shot or like you would know someone that was either like killed, like a close family member or friend that was killed rather than like, you know, not knowing someone um, that was murdered. And one of the people in the documentary who grew up in the west side of Chicago said – that when they had seen a 10-year-old get murdered in front of their school and it was just they didn't think much of it because that was normalized like that was the environment that these people grew up in and you know so it doesn't sound bad you saying that because if kids you know growing up you only know what you're surrounded by you know you cannot control that you are you cannot control where you're raised who you're raised by kids have a very like narrow-minded perception of the world and it's shaped by who they're around and so it of course makes sense that like that was if that's what was normal to you then like those things probably never phased you and you know though the documentary was like incredible and i think it really painted a a more clear picture for me around the representation of the reality of what it's like to grow up in a neighborhood like that besides that i'd love to hear a little bit more about as you were growing up i'm sure you started to realize okay this isn't normal like this is highly unsafe and uh you know you wanted a better life for yourself you wanted a a safer life for yourself, a more financially secure life. 
how did you like make those decisions and kind of pull yourself out of being in an environment where it may be easy to just stay and like want to survive on the streets? And I don't mean that in like, you know, an insensitive way. I mean it in like the most literal sense, like actually joining a gang and like getting involved in, in violent activities. When I was 11, my mom said that she was tired of living in Chicago. Uh, she's like, I'm tired of the cold. I want to move somewhere hot. So she packs us up and we moved down to Atlanta, Georgia. And we bounced around Atlanta for a bit before we settled in uh, like the borderline of Marietta, Smyrna, Georgia. My pops, my stepdad rather, is with us. And, uh, you know, he can't really work. He can't find work down there. It's really hard for him. So he... He goes back, but my mom doesn't want to leave because she's enjoying the Atlanta heat and everything that comes with the uh, being in the South. So we're down there and we're just struggling. And I was just doing whatever I could to make sure that we could eat, me and my brother. And me and my mom sometimes when she's around because she's working like she's working like 6 a.m. to 10 p.m. every day. So she's not even around to see what we're doing, but she trusts us enough to at least we're going to school, we're doing that type of stuff. Like we had that instilled in us from the jump. Um, and I ended up getting in so much trouble. Like I kept violating probation over and over uh, to the point where they kept giving me chance after chance because they're like, oh, you you have straight A's. So clearly you're just hanging around in the wrong crowd or you just don't have ample opportunity. The judge that I kept going to, because I kept going to the same one over and over for some reason, but they're just giving me chance after chance after chance. and then. Uh, at one point, they're just like, we're fed up. So either you're, you're going to, well, first they were just going to send me off to Kitty Jail or Juvie, whatever it was, placement facility. I don't know what it would have been because uh, we didn't get that far. I think my public defender or whatever had pleaded like, oh, he has a dad that lives in Chicago. He can go live with his dad. So I end up moving in with my real dad uh, in Schaumburg, Illinois. And it's like very, it's a completely different uh, environment to Chicago. It's like, very well off. It's very, very well kept. It's very nice. Uh, and my dad was always well off. So now I'm going to school there for the six months that I stayed with him. But while I'm there, I'm noticing things that I didn't necessarily care for. Like I'm in schools and I'm wearing like four XL white tees and baggy jeans and Air Force Ones and everybody else is wearing like tighter clothes, like more fit, more pristine. And they're looking at me like I'm less than them because of the way I speak. Because uh, I speak like slang, heavy slang, X, Y, Z, like every person, anybody you hear from Chicago talk, that's how I talk. And it like, I didn't like the way they looked at me. I didn't like the way they treated me. It, it felt really bad. So uh, after I left and went back to live with my, my pops and my mom, like six months later, once they just finally caved in and moved back up here uh, or back to Chicago, we're back in the hood, but now I've already had a taste of something different. So now this isn't even satisfactory for me anymore. Because Now I know there's something more. And I think that was a big piece of it is that I got to see that there's more than just this that we see. There's something else out there. And had I not experienced that, I probably wouldn't have the same mentality that I had. So I, could, I can thank those negative situations that I was in that forced me to go live with my dad to really uh, change my mindset and make me want more. It's kind of like a blessing in disguise, having to be with the same judge and then getting to that point where it's like, okay, now you have to go live with your dad. And honestly, like, thank God that you had that experience because it, in a way, kind of brought you to where, you know, you are now, or at least it kind of gave you that instinct, like, okay, there is something more for me. Exactly. And I feel like a lot of people don't have that, like you said, uh, not just with children, but people, we only really know what we can see because. I feel like faith is a very scarce thing these days. Um, outside of religion, just having faith in yourself and faith that you can do something greater, that self-confidence is kind of, it's very scarce. So I think that me being able to experience that and, and others, if they are able to experience that, then they'll probably have those same kind of revelations that I did. That's a really great point, uh, just around like f faith being scarce. It's very hard to believe in yourself, especially if you feel like the world is like against you. And especially if you are already in an environment where you have very little or you're not around like-minded people. Like I'm sure once you had that taste of like what it was like to go live with your dad and then you came back to like where you grew up or where your, your mom had moved back to, you know, maybe it was harder. I don't know. Was it harder to connect with 
friends that you have there, relationships that you had had, or I have like bad superiority complex, like because I'm still I'm still a kid, and you know kids are very impressionable, and I'm only like 14 still at this point, so like now, like I got this air of like oh you know like I'm this hood this hood stuff is beneath me, like and it didn't come off too well. <laughs> I can that it didn't come off too well. I got in a lot of fights over it. And then it didn't help once I like, once I changed the way that I talked, the way that I spoke, because I didn't always talk like this, obviously, but I like, I kind of faked talking like this so much until it became like my actual voice. Like it's my actual voice now, but I was faking it for a good seven, eight months, just faking talking like this. And I would come home and my brother would be like, why are you talking white? <laughs> like, and I'm like, no, this is just how I speak now. <laughs> And like magically, all of a sudden, this is yeah, just how I speak now. It's like one day, just wake up and change. And so once that happened, it didn't help either. So now it's like you think you're better than everybody, and you you uh, they called it good talking, like you good talking, like you know. so it was it, it didn't go over very well. No. Do you ever go back to that area of Chicago? Like, are there people there that you have maintained a relationship with that you've like maintained in contact with that like? Is there like a, a reason for you to want to go back now after, you know, all this time has passed and um, you've had all these experiences and you were able to like get yourself out of a negative situation? Like, is there now ever a desire to go back and um, like reconnect there or? I only get my haircut there still, like um, everywhere else that I go messes up my hair. So like I'll be like having the wolf face for a while until I go back home because I don't trust anybody with my hair anymore. I go back at least once, twice a month to get my hair cut, to get good food, see my family, because my family still lives there. Um, it's like a, a central hub for my entire family. Uh, and so, yeah, I'm, I'm back at least once a month, at the very least, but I'm back there all the time. I think that's really good because kind of like what you were mentioning earlier about like coming back when you were 14 at that superiority complex. Unfortunately, like that's a thing that like, yeah, obviously people who are not 14, like people who are are adults and that feel that they've like made it, uh, like that can manifest in people of all ages. And uh, you have to like acknowledge and honor where you initially came from for better or for worse and like, you know, pay it back. Obviously your family's still there. So it, it makes sense that you're going back to see your family, but I love that that's still kind of part of your identity and it doesn't have to be like the negative uh, experiences associated with that environment, like that can be abstracted away and you can still find a lot of like beauty and comfort and a sense of like home maybe from where you grew up in Chicago. A lot of people are gone now. Like a lot of the, the lucky few that made it out um, or made it to be adults, they moved away. Like I don't think, at least on my block, I don't think any of the people around my age live there anymore. So everyone moved away. So it's just like people's grandparents or aunts and uncles. So it's it's safer now just because like my generation is gone like or they're either in jail or dead or they just went away like because no one wanted to stay around for that uh, and so it's, it's decent over there now <laughs> somewhat, somewhat decent <laughs> after moving out and you went to college and i know you also do work with autistic children uh, i'd love for you to talk a little bit about that but um now that like you know you're in a different phase in your life I, you know, I, I'm wondering, do you often kind of like reflect on those experiences and is that where a lot of your music comes from? Like when you sit down to like think about kind of like shit that you've dealt with <laughs> to put it in like plain terms, you know, a lot of trauma uh, is there, there are things that we start to realize like after the fact and it takes a long time to like recognize and process so are those experiences things that you're kind of like still dealing with now and like still discovering within yourself and like writing about? Or are you now finding inspiration in other parts of your life? Oh, no, I'm definitely still finding. Uh, I'm definitely still finding things out, which inspired the whole The Younger I Get project. Because it's like uh, as the years go by, I'm, I'm like my youth comes back to me, like things that I'm thinking of, things that kind of resurface that I didn't necessarily uh, that I never considered, for instance, like over half of my family is, uh, they have drug addictions and they also have decorations. Like almost every male in my family was in the Marines or the army or the air force, highly decorated, come home and drug addicts. And 
it was before I was born. Like by the time I was born, they were already drug addicts. So I, I never really like thought about what happened until about, I want to say January of this year, where I, uh, I was in the Dominican Republic for like all of December and all of January. And it hit me like we go to different countries and we get treated like royalty as black men. We get treated like every word that comes out of our mouth is just gold. It's like, and they're just grabbing from the faucet of gold spillage. And then this is also like 80s or whatever, early 90s, 80s. They come home and they can't find jobs. They have families to provide for. They have to deal with, deal with redlining. And of course, Rodney King back then, and they can't get, like I said, the job is the biggest part of it. And there's nowhere to work. And on top of all of that, you got this crack epidemic that's hit the country. And dealing with all of that, it kind of just resurfaced, like just me seeing like how the world kind of destroyed my, or the country rather, destroyed my family tree. And so those things kind of play a huge part in why I have like certain aspects and perspectives, um, or why I have certain perspectives um, in the albums. Where I am in life right now is how I think about certain things. Um, and it makes me want to not only talk about, like I speak on gentrification a lot, I speak about redlining a lot, um, and songs like Factitious, and songs like Hedy Slamane, that's a big one. Um, that's more so talking about um, racism in the entertainment industry. But I, I, I wrapped it up so, so neatly that unless I specifically broke down every single part, that people wouldn't even realize what that's about. Um, and of course, Saturday was me kind of expressing that whole thing. It's like, yeah, I'm, I, I have no way to give money. I, I'm broke. I can't provide for my family. So yeah, I'm having a Saturday. Like, <laughs> like, but everything around me just looks green because uh, I think that's the first line of the verse. It's like everything looks super green because it's like we're kind of given this dream that America is the land of opportunity, the land where dreams come true, like the on earth, earth land of milk and honey. But when we get here, it's not that way. It's like, no, it's not that way. It's just a walk and lick. And I literally said it's a walk and lick, like scratch and sniff or sneak is how I say it. But yeah, like it's all just one big scam, one big finesse. And so you trying to navigate through that could break you mentally, especially with, I don't know what, uh, particularly my family went through during when they were in the war because they were so old that I didn't get to have those conversations with them before they passed. Uh, but I don't know what they were dealing with already. What kind of traumas and PTSD or shell shock, as they used to call it, um, that they were dealing with in addition to all the stuff that we were piling on them. And those are things that I started to think of as I was making this project. Yeah, I was also going to say like PTSD from, you know, from combat, like being in the Marines or the Navy, whatever, like we know that veterans definitely deal with PTSD. And of course, that can probably be a catalyst for drug use. And, you know, the list goes on. But I think that's just so beautiful that you're able to kind of intertwine all these revelations and like your perspectives on different topics and the way in which like the world is socially constructed, just like so many different ideas and thoughts that you have blended with like your own personal experiences um, and your like your family and your childhood, like you can you can kind of like neatly put it together in in music. And uh, when you take away the, the the melody and the beats, it's like the lyrics. At, you know, the bare bone structure, the foundation is poetry. I love that. Like I didn't, you know, I've listened to some of your music and I think that now I need to listen to it a bit like more deeply again after having this conversation because it, like this conversation is like coloring. There's a bit more meaning now, I think, behind the lyrics than previously maybe I would have understood. It's it's cool. It's like it's like I'm interviewing a writer, basically. <laughs> well, I like to see myself as a writer and not a rapper, like even though obviously my genre is rap like I don't necessarily like to view myself as a, a rapper per se like I'm just I'm a storyteller and I get to tell my story as well as my my ancestors and my family's story because a lot of times uh, specifically in my life history repeats so everything that they've gone through are things that I similarly went through as an adult um, I speak on it a lot how when I came back from college I had to find a way to to make money and it took me eight months every single day suit and tie to get a fast food job and it was just washing dishes and it took me it took me eight months for that and I can me thinking about that's the 2000s like I can't imagine how that must have been in the 80s when you had to when you just came back from making all this money quote unquote but then you get here you probably have to wait six seven months for the VA to finally give you the money that you made 
And meanwhile, you got babies crying and a wife looking at you like, well, you're supposed to be providing for me. And this is also back in the time of hyper masculinity where, you know, that pride and ego just eats away at you. And we're kind of, I went through the same thing, not to the same degree by any means, but in a same, in a similar sense. And so me seeing that it's kind of like it all comes full circle. <laughs> History does tend to repeat itself. And um, I also, I'm like, I'm trying to wrap my head around the fact that it took you that long to find the, like the most basic job. And like you just sharing that honestly, like puts so much into perspective, a lot of the opportunities that I myself had and like people that I grew up around have given to them. And so much, you know, we take for granted whether or not you have a lot or you have a little, like, you know, we're, it's by nature, we take things for granted when we're there. And then when it's gone, we're like, oh shit, we like really, we start to appreciate things when we are lacking them because we realize we don't have them. And um, I just think it's important to like constantly reflect and be grateful for the things that you have because there's always going to be someone out there who is less than you. It's it's easy to complain and it's easy to feel, you know, like, you know, complacent or pissed off or whatever. But when you really take a step back and like put your situation in perspective, there are so many worse things that are happening in the world. Um, and no matter where you're from or where you're at, I just think it's an important practice to have, having that gratitude, taking time to reflect because we can get so caught up in trivial things. And it's just a good reminder to have to like keep that perspective. And we, I feel like we as a whole, everyone kind of lacks the empathy that we used to have. Like no one wants to put themselves in anyone else's shoes anymore. Like uh, everyone's just like, well, as long as it's not me, it's okay. Like I fall victim to it too uh, sometimes where I'm like, well, as long as it's not me, it's okay. But you know, somebody does have it worse and we don't even try to put ourselves in that person's position. Like, hey, they have it worse. What would I want to happen for me if I were the one in that position? You know, we just kind of like, oh, well, someone's got it worse and keep it pushing, you know? And like I said, I'm, I'm guilty of it too. <laughs> yeah. And also like, I think recognizing like, that common humanity piece. Like we're all people at the end of the day. And there's a lot with our circumstances that we necessarily like cannot control. And we tend to make snap judgments about people based off the things that they like these materialistic, you know, items that they own or people that they know or things that they've done. And it's, if you take that away, like if you take those external layers from everyone, like you're left with basic human emotion at the end of the day, like the human mind works more or less the same across everyone, kind of. Actually, don't quote me on that. I'm not sure. But it kind of reminds me of that movie, uh, Trading Places, uh, way back with Eddie Murphy and Dan Aykroyd, where it's like, uh, they make that bet where it's like, if we took this poor black person and put him in the corporate position that this uh, well-off white man is in, and then take the white man and put him in the black position, like they're He's going to act exactly how he was acting. He's going to act the exact same way he was acting. And of course, it's Eddie Murphy, so they do it in a very comedic way. But it was the same thing. It's like, because we we become comfortable to the environment in which we're placed, in my belief. So eventually, you're going to get used to it. Maybe not. Maybe that right away, there'll be a little friction because, you know, you're two different objects. But after a while, it's going to be cohesive and you're going to fall into your role. And so I agree with what you're saying, where it's like, at the end of the day, we're all, you know, think the same across the board for the most part yeah i need to watch that movie now i'm interested it's very funny (laughs) it came on the 80s like when eddie murphy was at his peak yeah that's the problem i like i'm so bad about watching quote-unquote older films (laughs) which like the 80s is not that old like it's not ancient but i always have trouble just like getting myself to sit down and watch like like i watched forrest gump for the first time in lockdown like, that's embarrassing, you know? Like, that's a classic. Why did it take me that long to watch it? There's still so many, you know, so many things I have to put on and on the list to watch. So that is now one of them. Um, but aside from movies and pop culture references, this has been such an incredible conversation, Hugh. I could honestly keep going, but um, I don't know how long my listeners' attention spans are. But, you know, we might have to do a part two down the line. I would love that. I'm down for that. <laughs> and there's one final question that I have to ask you that I leave with every guest that comes on to the show. And that question is, what is something that brings you a bit of endorphins every day? I'm I'm a Libra by nature. So like uh, I've heard many times that we like movies and TV is like our kind of escape from reality. Um, so for me, I have to like, 
I have to watch an episode of something or some type of movie every single day, even if it's just like a clip of a movie on YouTube or something like that. I, I when I wake up, it's one of the first things I do as a as a form of meditation because I I recently found out that meditation is not just sitting and and you know legs crossed and eyes closed. It's actually things like just getting your mind right in the morning, maybe watching something that brings you those endorphins. And so that's my morning meditation. It's like my little movie watching and stuff. <laughs> I love that. That is like the best quote I've heard today. My morning meditation is watching a movie clip. (laughs) That's awesome. I mean, like, I totally agree. And I think that's like a huge misconception about meditation is like this idealistic picture of someone sitting cross-legged on a beach and gazing out into the sunset and like they're totally zen and calm. And yeah, that sounds great, but that's not an everyday situation for me. Like I would, I wish it was, but like it's about bringing that feeling into your day-to-day life. So like what are small things you can do to feel that sense of calm? And it's kind of like tapping into that flow-like state. So, you know, my morning meditation, I guess, is like, I don't know, I like making my bed. Like that makes me feel like I did something, you know, productive. (laughs) There's also other things, I guess, in my morning routine, but um, I love that. And I I think that's a really cool answer. No one has said that before. I like the making bed. I've never heard that one. <laughs> <laughs> it's kind of boring, but you know, <laughs> it's good to get into that habit. It's whatever it kind of does for you, you know, because what could be boring for me, like uh, I literally just had this conversation with my brother yesterday where he's like, he doesn't like watching TV. He doesn't like watching movies, but his morning thing in that aspect is like playing video games before he like makes breakfast for his kids. So like, I don't like video games. To me, video games are kind of boring. But for him, he loves him. So it's like, you know, whatever gives you that kind of whatever gives you that serotonin boost or whatever you need in life is like, go for it. <laughs> exactly. I love that. So, Hugh, where can my listeners find you on like social media, Spotify, all the listening links, social media links, everything? Well, all the uh, social media links, you know, Hugh Lee or the uh, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram is at who is Hugh Lee. Um, or you can just find everything in one central location at LibrasNeverLie.com. That would be Spotify, the YouTube, the Instagram, Facebook, SoundCloud, whatever. So I, I'd probably say just go to LibrasNeverLie.com, <laughs> even though people are typing it out like Libras Lie. <laughs> and hopefully if the tour is on, people can come watch you perform live in their respective cities. So I'm sure there, there will be information posted about that on your social media, your website, everything. Mm-hmm. And always LibrasNeverLie.com. It's like everything's always there and it's always on the social medias as well. <laughs> Thank you so much, Hugh. It was great having you on the podcast. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Thank you for listening. And remember to like, rate, and review this podcast on whichever listening platform you prefer. Don't forget to keep spreading endorphins and find things that bring you endorphins every day. See you next time.